All right, chapter 44 is the fourth and final test that Joseph lays out for his brothers. And remember, um, the real test here, uh, it seems, is to, to, to determine whether his brothers have changed or are they still the same men that, you know, years and years ago had sold him into slavery and all that. And this is the most, um, perhaps the most volatile of the test because it involves Benjamin, the youngest brother, the youngest of the sons, the youngest son of Jacob, and um, the one that you remember had been part of the discussions earlier. Um, I think we had, well, I'm not sure where we left off. Then he commanded the steward to decide, this is Joseph speaking, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that would be Benjamin, with his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this he practices divination. You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. You certainly understand the rhetorical question, why have you repaid evil for good? Joseph has shown them remarkable good, even though they don't know who he is. And the evil is, of course, that the charge that you've stolen us. And then he says, that the servant would say, by this, meaning this cup, he practices divination. Now, let's not stumble over that. Um, Moses, who's writing this, chooses to use that word, but it doesn't mean that Joseph is practicing divination. It's that he has this, this God-given ability of spiritual discernment to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh and that kind of thing. So, it's, it's hard to know exactly why Joseph asks him to do this, that is, do it this way. This, this is the most important cup to my master. And so it's to perhaps heighten the importance of this cup to him personally. Well, then, as we move into verse 6, they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words? These are the brothers now responding. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold... The money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then did we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Now, what are they doing? They're reminding the servant that they had returned all the money earlier. Remember that? And then doubled it. You remember? And so what are they doing? They're saying, look, this shows we're honest men. So you follow me? They're they're trying to make their case. They're trying to defend themselves. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be the, my Lord's servants. I mean, really, listen, this is to, to have a charge like this. It's serious to us. So whoever has it, that person should be killed. If one of the brothers has it, he should be killed. And the rest of us will be your servants. And I mean, good night. They're really... It's to demonstrate, I think, we are really serious about this. We're honest men. We haven't done what you're saying we did. Verse 10, he said, let it be as you say, but he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Now you see the servant is responding in a more gracious way. I won't kill him, but you all will be my servant. You follow me? Do you see what he's doing? Verse 11, then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And as he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. What city? The city of Memphis, where Joseph is the official. Now, what I want you to observe here is, again, we are seeing Judah come to the forefront as a leader. And that's something that we hadn't seen earlier. Judah is beginning to assert his leadership abilities, which is really important because of what happens to the family of Judah. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. 
Joseph said, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? There's that word again. The supernatural spiritual discernment. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? Here is an extremely important confession of Judah. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are now, my Lord's servants, both we and also he who has in whose cup has been found, hand the cup has been found. All right, now what's Judah saying here? What's he admitting to? What's he confessing? All the things that they did to Joseph. All the things that they did to Joseph. Could the, could the divination be a continuation of Joseph's ruse, uh, uh, being the second man in, in Egypt and, and being a ruse to his brothers, not wanting to, to give himself? That's a good. I mean, that's a good. That's a good point. Possibly that this is just part of the ruse. This is part of the charade that that is being acted out. But it is also true because of what God has done in Joseph's life. He does have that capacity of spiritual discernment, well, which was divination. It's a, very different. That's pagan. It has a pagan connotation to it, very definitely, very okay. definitely. Okay. So you're right. I mean, I think it is part of that ruse, that charade, that uh, facade that Joseph is putting up of of himself as a key leader, second, perhaps most powerful man in Egypt. But what Judah has done here is really quite remarkable. He is owning up to what had happened, going all the way back years and years earlier with Joseph. And it's almost like, um, and I don't think it's wrong to say this, it's almost like he's saying, this is really God's justice now being worked out. You know, what we thought we could cover up and pretend didn't happen and so on, it is coming back, and God is God is in effect doing this. But we, God has found out the guilt of your servant. I mean, we are guilty, and we're willing to be your servant now for the rest of our lives. Not just Benjamin, but all of us. And in verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Judah, uh, or rather Joseph, rejects that, rejects that proposition of Judah. Now, what follows in verse 18, and it's all the way through verse 29, I'm not sure we need to read this, because all Judah does is one of the longest single speeches in the whole Bible, really. It's a long speech. But all Judah is doing is just reviewing everything that's happened. He goes all the way back to the first trip they made, then the second trip. And so he's just reviewing all that and, and summarizing the dialogue between him and his father, Jacob, and why Jacob didn't want to first send Benjamin, why he eventually agreed to it, and so on. So if it's okay, we're not going to read all that because it's just rehearsing everything we, we've read. But now verse 30, let's pick up with this. Now, therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life was bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. In other words, if we go back to, to our father without Benjamin, it's going to kill him. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant and our father down to Sheol. He'll die. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I did not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let it, the boy go back to his brothers, with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that will find my father. Now, again, this isn't new truth. Because Judah had said to his dad, Dad, I guarantee you that Benjamin's going to be okay. And if not, then he can keep me. And that's what Judah's saying, keep me. So what you see here, and again, I think this is really important insights into what's happening to Judah. His character's changing. The self-sacrificial loyalty of, of Judah is now coming to the surface, and that's a good thing. God has done a lot in this man's life, and he is... Um, of course, as you know, to be the kings will come from Judah. 
David and the monarchy will come from Judah. So this is a significant change in Judah's, in Judah's character, in Judah's life, and in Judah's uh, entire approach to this, self-sacrificial loyalty. You want to see that. So now, yes, Fred. Is this somewhat analogous to um, people today uh, coming to that point of salvation and reviewing their lives and their sin and just finding it almost unbelievable that God could forgive them Mm. for the heinous sins in their lives? that showed a totally depraved heart, such as these men had at the time they sold um, Joseph. Sure, sure, sure. And two, I mean, another application of this would be that God, over time, does transform and change people. Even the most horrendous sinner, God can change. There's still the... There's still the past that sometimes have to be dealt with, but God changes a person, and that's certainly the truth of Judah. That's one of the reasons why this part of we always, and we should, we always focus on Joseph and what God is doing through and in Joseph. But it is always important to also notice what's happening to the other brother, and particularly Judah. Because remember, we, we, it wasn't too long ago we read about Judah you know, heading down and stops. So, oh, there's a, there's a woman of the street. I can have sex with her. And he is, buys a prostitute. Remember that, Tamar? I mean, it's horrible things <laughs> that this guy's doing. But now he's asserting the kind of leadership that he should assert. And this, uh, this kind of, again, I don't know other better phrase than self-sacrificial loyalty. Um, and, and that's good because of what Judah, later on at the very end of the book, Jacob's going to give a little prophetic statement of each one of his sons. And of Judah, he will say, the scepter will never depart from you. In other words, royalty is going to come for you. And that's where David is of the tribe of Judah. Of course, Jesus ultimately is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That was an interesting question, Fred. I, I struggle with that myself. That, that, you know, the song that you could save a wretch like me, you know. And, uh, and I, I know that... The, we're supposed to believe that we've been forgiven, <clears throat> but we we kind of struggle with how could I have possibly done that? Mm. You know, what was I thinking when I did that? Mm. When I did that sin or sure. that thing that was against sure. the Lord? So I struggle with it. Thank mm. you for bringing that up. Mm. And Christ said, "Go and sin no more." Mm. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. But if you believe that, then you have a challenge ongoing because you know you're going to sin again. So the, the second question is, how can I not sin anymore? What What's going to prevent me from following God's rules for a living? Well, I think the ultimate answer to a question like that is, and that's part of, the, I think, the transformation that we see in our lives, is we begin to, we begin to respond to the grace of God with loving obedience. Instead of, um, and I, I hope you understand the difference between these two, instead of a coercive Lord who is forcing you to obey him, other because if you don't, I'm going to zap you, versus a God who has poured out enormous grace on you. And there's nothing that can explain any one of you around the table, and I know it's true of me, around this table except God's grace. Nothing explains us. Except that's the song you quoted is Amazing Grace. Yes, and you know I was in, the, and I was near death in 2013. Yes, you, you know, were, and, and you know God saved me from that for a purpose, which is maybe it's to get some peace with this. You know? Of course. Well, and I think you know the story. the The man who wrote the the the, the, the word, the lyrics of Amazing Grace, John Newton, had been a slave trader for a long time. And he, the guilt he felt from that was overwhelming. But what cleansed him of that guilt was grace. That he was a changed man. He could not undo that he had shackled and taken thousands and thousands and thousands of slaves to the new world and treated them like they're animals. He would talk about that. William Wilberforce, by the way, was tremendously influenced by Newton. 
don't know if you know who Wilberforce was, but anyway, so he wrote that because see, this is about me, Amazing Grace. What I used to be, you know, the horror of my life, but now God has extended his grace to me. And that's what he's talking about, the responses, a loving, obedience response now. And so as we walk with the Lord more and more, I think that's one of the most significant changes we see in our lives. It's no longer responding to God, just, oh my goodness, if I don't do what he wants me to do, he's going to zap me with a lightning bolt or whatever. To know I want to do this because I love him. That's why Jesus says, hey. I went to the wrong place. Sorry about that. Jason, on the floor? Why don't you grab a chair? Yeah, grab a chair. Just grab a chair. And so that's just, uh, that's why those words, it's always, I don't know how you guys, it's, it's amazing to me how many people love the, 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 the hymn Amazing Grace. It's sung at secular events, it's sung at all kinds of things, and yet the words of it, if you really pay attention to the words, it almost has absolutely nothing to do with the people that are singing it or what's being celebrated. Because it's really the gospel, in a, a remarkable gospel in, in one song, so. Jim, isn't there a scripture that says my grace is sufficient? For oh, yeah. When Paul is in, in Second Corinthians, where Paul is asking the Lord, I think it's chapter 12, asking the Lord, remove these. He calls it the thorn in the flesh. Remove these from me. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And I mean, it's just, and, and we, we don't know what that was. People speculate on it. But whatever it was, it was difficult for Paul. It made his life much more difficult. But he realized that it ultimately was something that kept him closer, more dependent on the Lord. So God says, my grace is sufficient for you. David was kind of a rascal. He was. He was. I mean, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was a rascal. He did things that... Um, would have calamitous effects on his family, but God still still dealt with him in and grace. And he's still in this He is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you know, when you look at, uh, I, I did a study this one time in one of my um, other Bible studies years ago. We did, a, we did a study of the people that are in the genealogy of Jesus. And use the word rascals. There are some real rascals in that. I mean, it's just, and four women are mentioned in that, uh, which is, again, just a very un, almost unprecedented thing to see in the ancient world, but women in a genealogical table. That's God's grace. When you look at those, three of those four women that are mentioned are not Jewish men, women. They're women who came into the covenantal community through faith. Now, chapter 45 is... Is, is just a wonderful chapter. We're now at the apex, the peak of this relationship that Joseph has had with his brothers since they came down to buy food. He now tells them who he is. So look at this, and especially, uh, and we should be able to do it because we, we have a half hour. What Joseph says, starting in verse 4, is one of the most theologically important sections in the book. So we're going to work our way to this. All right, now verse 1. Now, the, his brothers have passed the test. And with what Judah says in this last speech or whatever, is just revealing to him, my brothers have changed. So Joseph says, And Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. And no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. No, we would infer it. No, it's all the servants, everybody except Joseph and his brothers. Where, okay. where are you at right now? Uh, the beginning of chapter 45. Second verse. Second verse of chapter 45. Okay. So, verse 2, and he wept aloud, this is Joseph, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, so when it's, I mean, this is a wailing. I mean, Joseph is, 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 is sobbing and wailing. And it's not out of sorrow, it's really now out of joy. And Joseph said to his brothers, now can you imagine them hearing this? I am Joseph. And you just, just try, try to process this. Try to be Judah or, or Simeon or Naphtali. Try to be one of those brothers hearing this. What did they assume? Joseph was dead. 
They were feeling the weight of the guilt of what they had done. They believed that all the hardships they were experiencing was because of what they had done. And so now Joseph, this, this powerful man in Egypt says, I am Joseph. And the very next question, is my father still alive? And the brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Literally, literally, man, the words here is these guys are confused and terrified. That's what that Hebrew word means. They're confused and terrified. Do you understand why? I mean, first of all, I'm probably sure that, no, you're not. You're not Joseph. You can't be Joseph. I mean, just all these confusing thoughts are just rushing through all of their minds. And two, they're afraid because he's a powerful man. Because if you were one of these brothers and he were in front of a powerful man who's just said he's Joseph, what do you assume he's going to do to you? Yeah, he's going to kill us. He's going to finally get his revenge. So, I mean, you can understand why they're fearful, they're terrified, they're confused. And then what Joseph says here, I just this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. Look at this statement. Because God sent me before you to preserve life. For famine had been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me, but God. Did you see that three times? God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. He made me a father to Pharaoh, and the Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph has a deep, deep understanding of the sovereignty of God, doesn't he? Now, let's, I don't have a board in here, do I? No, No. I don't have a board in here. So I've done this before, but just try to now picture it in your mind. The railroad tracks, remember that? The one side of the railroad track, divine sovereignty. The other side of the railroad track is, is human responsibility. Okay, God sovereignly is orchestrating this to accomplish the purpose, and Joseph states the purpose, to preserve life, to preserve this cocoon, in this cocoon of Goshen, to preserve the Israelite people so that God can fulfill his promise. But does that mean that the brothers are not complicit and guilty? No, because what they did was a dastardly evil act. But you and see, that's that's the, we struggle with it all the time, because we affirm God's sovereignty, we believe His providence is real, but yet we also understand that human beings are not robots. You know, just okay. And God said, "Do this, do this, and do that." No, because when humans act, they act deliberately and intentionally as an act of their will. But God is superintending all of this to accomplish his purposes. And as Joseph will say later on to them, brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. So what, what should we infer from that? God can take evil acts and bring good out of it. It's still evil. But his sovereignty is so significant that he can take that which is evil and bring that which is good out of it. Okay, now, I know we've mentioned this before. What is the greatest example of that premise? Death and resurrection. The death and the resurrection of Christ. The, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross is the most dastardly evil thing that has ever occurred on planet Earth because he was totally innocent. The charges against him were totally trumped up. He had six trials that were all illegal. Everybody was everybody was contriving all the false witnesses and all that stuff. And so Jesus dies. But does God bring good out of that evil? Oh my goodness. Every one of us around the table has experienced that righteous good. It's salvation, it's justification, it's redemption, it's forgiveness, it's cleansing from sin, all of those things because of the cross. So that's it's so easy for us to say this in a, in a nice room on a cold day, 
but it's living it tomorrow. It's it's Peggy's family, and particularly her children, processing what's happening, and hoping we pray that they will see that God did something in their mother's life in the last five six years of her life. And you have to you have to accept that that is the eternally significant thing you have to come to terms with. So I just I love this. And he's not done yet, but I love this declaration of Joseph that in three times you saw it, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. God was in control of all this. And he had an ultimate purpose for it. That is to preserve life, to get, to get you down to Egypt, to where you can survive and thrive. And as you know what happens in the, in the, uh, in the ultimate. So he says then, I love this too, verse 9, hurry up! Go get my father. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, he just can't wait. Hurry up. Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Please note this phrase, there I will provide for you. What's Joseph saying? I'm going to take care of you. Because of my power, because of my influence, I'm going to take care of you. Now, I want to, um, I hope I have enough. I think I do. If you just take one quickly and pass it on. I, I want you, you know, we don't often do this in, in, in church. Or in, but I, just, I want you to, we've done this a number of times in the class. I just want you to have a sense of the geography of this. I want you to have a sense of, of of where, where are they going? What do they mean? Now, there's a lot on this map. There's a tremendous amount on this map. But I, I drew, this is one of my PowerPoint slides. So before I printed it off, I put the big arrow that points at Goshen. You see it? Yes. Okay. You either see it or you don't see it. Do you see it? Okay. I'm talking about this arrow here. Okay. I just want you to be alert immediately. Here's a Goshen. Goshen, it's, we know where it is. We know exactly where it is. It's on the eastern side of the Nile Delta. Remember, the Nile River is one of the few rivers on planet Earth. It's an enormous river, but it flows from the south toward the north. That's very unusual on planet Earth. Most rivers flow north to south or east to west, but this flies, flows from the south to the north. So anyway, and this it's a massive delta. If you, if you do a Google map... Of, of the Nile Delta, you, that thing is absolutely gargantuan. It is an enormous delta, and it's rich land because, you know, you know, you know what a you know, river does. It brings all the silt and all the stuff, and so it dumps it here <laughs> before it enters into the Mediterranean Sea. But anyway, and so Joseph cho- is choosing a prime area, and it's an area, it's very large. It was large enough for them to graze all of their animals, and for them to be involved in, in the agriculture, which is what they are. They're nomadic herders and farmers and so on. And so Joseph is saying, this is where I'm going to put you. And so I'm going to provide for you because of five-year famines and so on. And verse 14, then he fell upon brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, the brother, brothers talked with him. I love that. Now they start to talk. Having a conversation, can you imagine what they talk about? <laughs> I mean, just all kinds of things. Okay, now, what word would you use to describe what's just happened? A reunion. A reunion? Reconciliation, reconciliation is maybe even a more powerful word. There's been reconciliation now. And what, what this does, and, and I, want you, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Joseph's words and his his emphasis on the sovereignty of God and all that God has done neutralizes their guilt, their fear, and their bitterness. Right? No, you're supposed to say right. So, right. <laughs> but in other words, what Joseph is doing, it's just masterful. What Joseph is doing here, because he knows these guys, when they... And they know he's Joseph because he already heard what Judah said. They're feeling the guilt. But, I mean, the, the immediate response would be, oh, my goodness, he's going to take revenge on us. We're guilty and all that. But 
what Joseph does is neutralizes all of that with sound theology. Sound doctrine produces godly living. Truly understanding who God is deals with fear, guilt, bitterness, all of those things. And so Joseph Joseph could have said multiple things, but he gives focus to God, who God is, what God's like in his sovereignty and providence. So guys, listen, I know you, what you did was horrible. But I want you to understand this in the larger context. God sent me here. Three times he says it. So it neutralizes the fear that they had. Understandably, they would have that. The guilt and the bitterness. They're truly, truly reconciled. That's why I love that Moses and and the brothers, and after his brothers talked with him, they started talking. Something they hadn't done as brothers for decades. They're a family again because of Joseph, strong affirmation of theology. And I think that sometimes, I hope you understand the spirit in which I'm saying this, but sometimes pastors do that from the pulpit, sometimes even our counseling. Our focus has to be always on God. It is God, his attributes, what he's doing, what he's accomplishing, and so on. It is that which helps us develop the proper perspective about things. If we don't have that, then if we don't kind of always strive for that proper perspective, God is in control, God's sovereign, things don't just happen, God has my best interest heart, those kinds of things just keep, keep drilling those down. It helps to deal with just the experience and feelings that are often not very trustworthy. As we've said many, many times, life life is like this. Life's a roller coaster. That's life. Until the Lord comes back, that's life, because it's a fallen, broken world. But what helps us through the down periods, as well as even the up periods, is the proper understanding of God. Good, sound theology. So... uh, just to me, that's one of the major takeaways of something like this. Joseph's little talk to the guys based on the theology. This is who God is. God sent me three times he says that. That really helps the guys put this in perspective. David, are you going to ask a question? Oh, I thought you had your hand up. Fred, somebody had it. Yeah, Fred. Uh, isn't it true that sometimes we have to have that same... Um, understanding with friends that are not friends anymore because maybe we have violated confidences or we have prior to coming to Christ maybe sure really were antagonists sure did not like them were very aggressive toward them and that's not only a testimony, but it's a purification within of your own. A cleansing, you know, you know, our heart, melding of our heart, changing, you know, I think so, absolutely. And, and that's good. It is very good. It, sometimes it's painful, ultimately, I mean, to go, but it's good. It's good for us, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, let's, well, I'm in good shape. Let's try to finish this and get into the next chapter, and then we'll... Again, I won't be here next week. Fred, maybe you want to send that out just in case anybody that's not here. I wouldn't want them to show up. When the report was from verse 16 now in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come and it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Now notice this. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beast, go back to the land of Canaan, take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. Joseph, you are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Do you see what Pharaoh's doing? Pharaoh is now stamping his approval on what Joseph said he'd do. And in addition, he's giving wagons of the, of the, of, of the household of Pharaoh, Pharaoh to get everything, to bring the kids and all the possessions and everything. That's really remarkable. The most powerful man in the ancient world at that time is supporting what Joseph said he's going to do. 
And so it's just, it's really, it's a, it's a very encouraging affirmation, it would seem to me, for them, of what Joseph is, is promised that he would do. And then this next paragraph, the sons of Israel did. Who's Israel? Jacob. That's Jacob. Just remember, I want, you keep seeing this interchange. Remember, Israel is the new name of Jacob from Genesis 32, after he wrestled with God. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. To Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Remember? Benjamin is the young. Okay. To his father, he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Now, just think about that. Let that sink in. He says to them as they're leaving, now, guys, brothers, don't quarrel on the way. Because he gave Benjamin extra stuff. That's new in nature. Yeah. I mean, it's... You're talking about how many brothers together? Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's an interesting parting exhortation. Plus, you know, perhaps as they begin talking and as they begin sharing... How Joseph got down to Egypt, um, they may, well, you are more to blame of this than I am, or, you know, whatever. So it's just a hard but honest challenge. Don't quarrel. Reminding them again, God orchestrated all this. God superintended all this. Let's praise him. I mean, it's just a, it's an amazing thing to say as the guys are getting ready to leave. Now, what I want you to do is just look at the map again. Again, I think it's interesting to do this. Now, you can see this. This, in its original, is colored, uh, colored map. But, uh, but here they are. The, the, um, where Joseph's court is, is in Memphis. Not, N-O-P-H. But now, you see that? That's where the court is. It, during during the uh, end of the Middle Kingdom, which is where we are in Egypt's history, the capital was in Memphis. And so you can see, is Goshen very far from Memphis? No. So where Joseph is going to be ruling, as still the number two man in Egypt, it's not. he has his family very close to him. The second thing I want you to observe is the roadway. Do you see? You can. I think you should be able to see it. The way of Shur, that's a road. That's a major international road of the ancient world. And the way of Shur, remember Shur is another name for Egypt. The way of Shur, so they're going to go back up to Beersheba. That's, and remember, J J Jacob lives up near Hebron, which is a little bit north of Beersheba and near, near the Negev. So they're going to follow the way of Shur. They're going to go that road. They're not going to go along the coast. They're going to go here, the way of Shur. And you might also remember, just a quick aside, but we did cover that, this was the road that Hagar took when she was trying to flee. Remember when Sarah kicked her out there a little earlier in the study? So anyway, I just, I just want you to have the geography. This is really important. It's all this stuff. We can document this in history. We know exactly where they were and exactly what they were doing. And this map, I just wanted you to see that. It's got Gaza up there. It does have Gaza. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you hear about that every day in the news almost. All right, let's close this out, and then we'll, we'll get into the, to the next uh, chapter as well. <clears throat> so Israel took his journey more than, remember, Israel's Jacob, no doubt from Hebron, and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So he stopped at Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the Lord. Remember, Beersheba was, was where Abraham had lived. Beersheba was where Abraham there's, had, uh, he built his house there. He lived in that walled city. He drilled a well there, Abimelech, and all that stuff. Beersheba was the, and when Abraham had uh, gone to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis, um, uh, we'd stayed there a while ago. But anyway, he, he had lived in Beersheba, and he goes north up to Mount Moriah. So that's why he stops there. Then, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and Jacob responds, here am I. And he said, I am God. 
the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What does that mean? He's going to die, die in Egypt. Jacob, you're going to die in you're going to die in Egypt. And that's what, exactly what happened. But this was important for Joe. Sorry, this is important for Jacob to hear this. Because Jacob needs to understand also God's sovereignty, God's control, that what God is going to do, I'm going to take your clan down to Egypt. And as I told your grandfather, Abraham, your people will be in Egypt for 400 years. Then they will be freed, and I will make a great nation of them. You remember that? So what he is, that is God, what God is reviewing with Jacob here is the same thing he had told Abraham and Isaac. He's repeating it. Because there may have been some consternation and fear and uncertainty in, in Jacob, but God is just saying, it Beersheba, hometown, uh, former hometown of Abraham and so on. Uh, I'm in control of this. I'm going to go with you. But as Daryl correctly said, close your eyes, you're going to die in Egypt. And then we'll read later on, they'll take Jacob's bones and bury them up next to Abraham, as you will see in a minute. Okay? It says, this one says, uh, the sons of Israel carried Jacob up. Israel is Jacob. Is that That's correct. Right. Remember, Israel is the covenant name of Jacob. Mm-hmm. That's right. Then verse eight, 5 and 6, Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, the little ones, their wives, and wagons of Pharaoh sent to carry them. They took their livestock and goods. I don't have to read it. They just took everything that was there, including all their children, grandchildren, etc. Now, verse 8, through really the end of this chapter, lists, and we're not going to go through all this, but lists all of Jacob's children and grandchildren that go down. What word would you use to describe 8 through 26? This is the clan of Jacob. This is Jacob's clan. Is that, that, that's a word we don't use very much in the United States. Would that be the covenant people? Yeah, these are the covenant people. This From this clan, all the children and grandchildren of Jacob from this clan, God will birth the nation of Israel. And 430 years that they're there, they will go from 70 to close to 2 million people. It's a population explosion. We'll, we'll read about that in Genesis, uh, uh, sorry, in, in Exodus. The very first chapter of Exodus explains that to us. <clears throat> because from the end of chapter uh, 50 of, of Genesis until the opening of, of, of Exodus is 430 years. But we'll talk about that when we get to that later on. You can't tell the players without a program. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So what I want you to notice here, what I want you to notice is this is organ, this meaning, this listing of the clan members is organized around the wives. Verse 15 said, these are the sons of Leah. Who are the sons of Leah? Reuben, verse 8, Simeon, verse 10, Levi, verse 11, Judah, verse 12, Issachar, verse 13, Zebulun, verse 14. Now, you you remember that, and you have the chart I gave you back uh, quite a while ago. But it, it's interesting. It just organizes it around the wives. And then it concludes at the end of verse 16, all of this part of the clan, number 33. Then the next grouping, verse 16 through 18, are the, the sons of Zilpah, who was the servant of Leah. Gad, verse 16, Asher, verse 17. And that total number of the clan was 16. And verse 19 through verse 22 are the sons of Rachel. Joseph and Benjamin. But then it reminds us in verse 20 that Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And then finally, uh, verse 23 through the end, 
in the sons of Bilhah. Remember, that was the servant of Rachel. So you have two wives and two servants. This is Dan and Naphtali. They had seven. So when you total them all up, it's 70. That's why it says at the end of verse 27, all the persons of the house of Jacob came into Egypt for 70. Jacob's clan includes 70 people. Now, there's a little bit of a problem. It's a problematic, but I'm sure it's that big of a deal. But in the end of verse 26, it says, uh, we're 66 persons in all. And there's just, when you read the commentaries and, and read the expositors, there's all kind of dancing around this. Well, how's 66? Does that mean he's not including Joseph? Not including, I mean, it's high. So there are several explanations for this. But it, I don't think it's a major problem because the 66 is obviously excluding somebody. Either because they're already in Egypt or whatever, but the total number of clan members of Jacob's clan that are now in Egypt is 70. And that's why it's really important because as we're, as we're getting near the end of Genesis, is from this clan of 70, God will birth the nation. And it will grow. Uh, there's, a, there's a census list in the book of Numbers of all the, the, the tribes by the time they're ready to enter the promised land. And it's 600 men, 600,000 men. And then you extrapolate from that women and children. You're getting pretty close to 2 million, which we'll talk about when so we get there. That's, that's the number that will be brought out of Egypt. You're correct. So... <clears throat> God had said to Abraham, as we reviewed the promise from you and nations, numerous as the stars of the sky are going to be born, you'll be a blessing to all the world, and I'm going to give you land. You didn't see that fulfilled. Even with Jacob, he's going to get 70 in his total clan, and the Canaanites still control everything. That's about to change. And the nation is going to be birthed in the cocoon of Goshen protected by the state of Egypt, protected by Joseph and, and the followers, that that nation is going to be birthed. Now, what happens, and that's what Genesis, sorry, that's what Exodus tells us. What happens as this population explosion ensues, a new pharaoh comes on the scene and enslaves them. And that's what will produce the narrative that we'll study when we get into the book of Exodus. And we're not done with Genesis yet. But we're done with the key elements regarding Joseph and how he reveals all of this to his brothers. So, among other things, as we as we leave, I want to look just real quickly at 28 through the end, and then we'll be done. He had sent Judah ahead of him. Notice again how many times Judah now is just coming to the forefront of leadership. To Joseph, show the way before him in Goshen. He came into the land of Goshen. And Joseph prepared his chariot and went out to meet his, Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers, my father's household, who are in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the, me, and the men are shepherds, for they are, have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and herds and all they have. Now, this is counsel. This is advice. You are, when, when Pharaoh asks you and says, what is your occupation? Say to him, your servants have been keepers of livestock. From our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph is saying, tell them you're keepers of flocks, not shepherds. Now, this has created an enormous amount of discussion. What exactly is going on here? We really don't know, but we do know this. Shepherds tend to be nomadic. They had the reputation of not being trustworthy, and it is that group that is going to threaten the Nile Delta soon after Joseph dies. That may be a part of this, but honestly, we are not exactly sure. This is, there's been an enormous amount written about this, an enormous amount. 
But Joseph is just trying to counsel them. Be careful the language you use with Pharaoh. And we'll talk more about that next week. Now, the takeaway from this morning is really, and, and I really mean this, the takeaway from this this morning is what Joseph did as he's reviewing with his brothers, God sent me to good theology, sound theology, produces God of living. That's what changed these brothers. It removed their guilt, dealt with their fear, removed their bitterness, and reconciliation occurs. Okay? Lord, we are grateful for our time. Thank you for the men that are here. It's a bit crowded here this morning, but we're just grateful we have a place to meet and for the generosity of the Dodge people to allow us to use this uh, part of this building. And so we thank you for that. Thank you for our review, uh, which we're now basically done with uh, this study of Joseph, a remarkable study. Uh, those key phrases like the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, and then his immensely significant testimony to his brothers. Three times he says, God sent me here. And that is a review, uh, I guess, a summary of a deep understanding of God, a deep understanding of your sovereignty, Lord, of your providence, that you were guiding and superintending and directing human events to accomplish your eternal purposes. We need to have that perspective about our lives as well, and indeed about our world. Things seem so chaotic, and yet at times we just get a little window into the understanding of what you really are doing. And that is why we must trust you, Lord. We must have our confidence and our certainty and our faith centered in you. Help us to be men of faith who trust you and can say like Joseph, the Lord is accomplishing these things. I'm not sure Joseph always understood it, but with great faith he could say, God sent me here to preserve life. So, Lord, be with us as we go our separate ways now. Thank you for each man here. May they represent you well in all of their activities the rest of this day and this week in Christ's name. 